Well, who would have figured that we'll still be talking curling in June? Kevin, you're doing okay. Are you, where are you now? We're doing okay. You know, we, uh, Sean and I snuck away for a couple of days here. We're just down in Canmore in Alberta, not too far from Calgary. And we just kind of snuck away and, uh, cause we've been uh, in our house for many, many months. So it's, it's nice here to, uh, to get into the mountain fresh air for a couple of days. Hanson, have you got out golfing? Uh, I'm just about getting there. My shoulder injury is slowly coming around. I think about another week I'm going to try to uh, hit a few balls for what it's worth. But we're having some really good weather right now, so everything's fine. Uh, Kev, summer's, summer's here, and uh, it's going to end on Friday. Okay, so <laughs> It actually is. You're right, Jimmy. Let's, let's roll out another show, boys. Last Rock, eighth end, up by two. She got it. I don't think I'm. I don't think I'm white. I don't think you are either. Oh, oh. it's clean. Oh, don't oh. kill it, Ben. Don't kill it. The line's really good. Line's good. Right on the button, guys. Right Last here. stone for Kevin Martin. They want it on the button. The sweepers are watching it. Fans are on their feet. Kevin Martin goes out as a champion. Cuts him to one. He will win his final Grand Slam, taking the Players' Championship. Talk about putting an exclamation mark at the end of a career. All he had to do was cut him down. Kevin Martin can celebrate. He is a champion. Well, here we go again, fellas. Uh, lots to talk about, uh, including the U.S. men's and women's nationals concluded this past weekend. There's been a lot of chat on our Facebook group this week about Canadian coaches working around the world and making other nations stronger. Some people don't like it. They don't like it. Uh, they've got different views, and some are saying, well, that shouldn't be allowed, uh, that coaches go outside of Canada to coach. Plus, we've got a Great guest coming on. Uh, Wayne Madaw is going to join us. And uh, who doesn't like Wayne Madaw and the great story that he is and was. Ten times he's been to the Briar. Uh, and we've got a couple of interesting emails. A lengthy one, but but really good uh, that we're going to talk about. If you want to email us, uh, we love to get them. We read a lot of them. You can email us insidecurling at gmail.com, Twitter at Curling Inside, and Facebook at Inside Curling. Also on Instagram at Inside Curling Podcast. So thank you all for the emails. Try and keep them short, and then you you got a shot of us reading them on air. Warren, why don't you give us your take on the U.S. men's and women's nationals that happened this week? Somehow they pulled all this stuff off with COVID, but uh, it's been great if you're a curling fan. Uh, it'll wind down a little bit now, but, but we'll crank up a bit in another month. So what about that sort of final event of the curling season, Warren, in the U.S.? Yes, I think we've finally made it. We've come to the end. So in Wausau, Wisconsin, this uh, Sunday, the finals of the U.S. Men's and Women's Championship took place. On the women's side, it took an extra end before Corey Christensen defeated Jamie Sinclair by a score of 7-6. So Christensen is the 2021 U.S. Women's Champion. Both those teams will advance to the U.S. Trials in November. They're going to be held in Omaha. And Tabitha Peterson, who you may remember represented the U.S. at the Women's Worlds this year. She's already qualified. And there'll be another event held, or two, in the fall to qualify three more teams. So there'll be six teams in total in the U.S. women's as well as the U.S. men's. In the men's side, uh, things were a little different there. Corey Dropkin defeated Jed Brundage 7-3. to Brundage a bit of a surprise to be in that final. Dropkin wasn't. 
And so the two teams that qualified for the trials on the men's side were Dropkin and Brundage, and of course they will join John Schuster, who was there as a result of winning in 2020. And same as the women's, there'll be three more teams will qualify in the fall. So interesting enough, of the four teams that qualified on the show last week, I suggested that probably three of those teams would be the best picks, which is Christensen, Sinclair, and Dropkin, and they came through. I had also picked Rich Ruinen who didn't make it to the final four, but I thought watching a few of those games, possibly the best one of the week in the round robin was ruined against Dropkin. And a uh, well-played game went into the extra end, and the key was Dropkin making a phenomenal run-back double, kind of angle run-back double in the ninth end to pick up two, and that was really the difference in that game. Another interesting thing to note of the U.S. Nationals and their mixed doubles Nationals, one person, Vicki Persinger, ended up playing on both the championship teams, on the mixed doubles side, she ended up winning with Chris Plies, and then she was playing second for Corey Christensen on the women's side. So she sort of became the Carrie Anderson of USA Curling by being a winner in both mixed doubles and women's. So that kind of wraps up things in the U.S. Kevin, I don't know if you had a chance to watch any of it, but uh, what do you think about all that? Well, I, I I just want to mention a little bit about uh, the youth in the U.S. We talked about it a few weeks ago, actually, uh, and uh, sure enough, uh, Jamie Sinclair, I guess, is one of your, if you can imagine saying Jamie Sinclair is one of the older players. She's 29 years old. Uh, and then Corey Christensen, who ended up winning, is 26. Madison Bear actually came in third at 24. And Corey and Madison were actually teammates in the World Junior. They picked up a silver in 2016 in Copenhagen. So very young uh, players on the women's side. And that, that's what I was paying attention to. I think it's just phenomenal for uh, the U.S. program to have such young competitors. Same on the men's side. Uh, of the four, you've got Corey Dropkin, Jed Brundage, Scott Dunham, and, and Luke Violet. Um, Corey's 25. Uh, Jed Brundage was a bit of a surprise, in my opinion, to, to get to the final. He's 34, an older uh, group. Uh, Scott Dunham, though, only 28. And uh, Luke Violet, 22 years old, just a junior. So... On the women's and the men's side, um, the teams that are coming up to the top are very, very young. So, um, you know, obviously you, you, you learn as you play in our, in our sport. It's kind of like chess on ice. And, and to have these young players already doing well at that young age, by the time they get to 30, 32 years old, we're going to be looking at some really strong uh, U.S. curlers on both the men's and women's side. So, you know, for me, Warren, that, that's something that just really came out uh, this week, you know, we talked about it a few weeks ago, but it's always interesting when the championships happen, will the young people be able to keep up with the older crowd? And they certainly were able to in the last week. Uh, Warren has pointed out in the past, Kevin, uh, that the age of Canadian curlers, high-performance curlers, is is kind of old, kind of old to other places. And you bring up the U.S. of having really young curlers. Is there something, Kevin, that sticks out for you, why the U.S. is having younger curlers having more success than perhaps Canadian ones? The way I see it, when I go down to teach uh, curling schools and, and curling academies, a, a ton of young people uh, come out to these academies. So I'm, I'm not exactly sure why, if it's maybe an interesting uh, uh, in, in the younger group um, for some reason, um, that in Canada, say if, if I go to do an academy in, in a city, We'll get a few kids out, but it'll be a lot of adults coming out. Not not super old people, but but older people. In the states, it's the opposite. 
they're much younger and I don't know why uh, I, I don't have an answer but um, they do have a lot of academies and clinics to learn to curls and maybe a lot of these young athletes are coming out of that but I would I would like to hear Warren's opinion because it seems to be pretty clear the the, the group that are winning in the US are, are say age to age age to the to the group winning in Canada substantially younger and obviously that has to be healthy for the future I, I would think Warren well, I think overall in the United States, there's a little different attitude about curling down there, and it's uh, it's attractive to young people. They're intrigued by it. It's kind of mesmerizing. They are curious, and they want to play it. They want to try it. And I think it's a little different than it is in Canada. I think the other situation that's maybe a little different with the USCA, they changed their whole approach to how they select or put teams together after the 2014 Olympics, which to some degree was after strong suggestions from the U.S. Olympic Committee that some things had to change. So they sort of, their high-performance uh, players are, are, are work as a group, and they move their players around between teams and teams that they think it's necessary. And uh, I think when Phil was on with us last week, he more or less said that, that they sort of, they're working as a high-performance group rather than just individual teams. And I think that's kind of helped things as well, to bring things along with the younger people. And they've also always brought their juniors up. Their juniors, I think, have played in the U.S. Nationals now for quite a few years, the junior champions just to give them some experience. And uh, I think it's a little different in Canada where it's very hard for our younger teams to to get in the Canadian Championship, uh, depending upon where they live, and also to, to get up to the next step from, from where they are when they're juniors. And we've talked about that a lot in the show in uh, weeks gone by, and I'm sure we'll talk about it a lot going forward. So let's talk about uh, coaching. Uh, we've got different opinions from people. Um, I don't see how people can step up and say, uh, Canadian coaches shouldn't be allowed to coach abroad. It, it seems ridiculous to me, but I'm, I could be wrong there. Um, like I say, people have weighed in on this topic, and not everyone thinks the way I do. Uh, there's many people out there, Warren, who say, uh, man, they shouldn't be allowed. Well, this is nothing new. It's gone on for years, and there's been criticism about it for years. I can remember as far back as uh, the first European team winning a world championship back in 1975 in the way of Otto Daniele from Switzerland. And Otto Daniele had been coached by Ray Turnbull. So all of a sudden, I remember being in arenas where people were screaming, Turnbull, this is your fault. And certainly back in, and even in those days, uh, Turnbull was doing work around the world. I was, and so was Wally Ursulak. And we were teaching people in other countries and bringing them to the point where they could be competitive at the world level. Back in the 60s and 70s, the World Championship, there was a lot of teams that were pretty pretty on the edge. And uh, I think the fact that Canadians have helped develop in these other countries is why the sport is where it is today. So I, I don't see any issue with it whatsoever. Uh, if, a, if a coach has developed themselves and they're good and they want to go and work with another country, that's their, their decision. That's up to them. If Curling Canada wants to bring any of those coaches, they can negotiate agreements with them if they wish. It's uh, it's an open territory, free world. I mean, we've been exporting hockey coaches around the world uh, forever. Uh, most of the coaches in the NHL have always been Canadians up until a few years ago. So I don't see any issue with it. And uh, Kevin, I'm sure you probably look at it the same way. Well, I guess what I'd like to look at is from from the eyes of, say, uh, a, a curling program. Let's uh, say the, uh, J- the Japan curling program. Well, if you want to get coaches... Uh, curling is fairly young in in that country, 
So if you're going to pick up a, a really good coach, well, where would you go? <laughs> where are you going to go to find the very best coach you can? Well, right now you've got J.D. Lind running the, the Japan Curling Program and Connor Nedjevin, of course, working there as well. So you've got two Canadians actually in, in, in Japan. You've got Peter, uh, Peter Gallant working in South Korea. You've got, uh, of course, over the years, both um, uh, Marcel Rock was in China. Uh, Mike Harris was in China. Um, as far as U.S., you've got Don Bartlett, uh, my lead for years. He was down there working with Schuster. Um, Al Hackner, of course, working in the, in the U.S. Ed Lukwich, Wayne Madaw, of course, in Sweden. Laney Peters down in the U.S. So there's tons and tons of examples of all these top Canadian curlers going down and helping out in all kinds of countries. And uh, it just makes sense to me that if, if a country wants to get better at a sport and curling... Uh, being, you know, Canada's big game for a long, long, long time, why wouldn't you go to that pool to find your instructors and your coaches? It makes sense to me. So I I don't see the reason for, uh, well, I do see, I guess I shouldn't say that. You do see the reason why people are complaining because, uh, you know, Canada's not winning as much as we used to. So we just have to pick up our game a little bit, make sure our coaches that are here are able to compete with the coaches that are over there. And that, you know, because the athletes are always going to be strong. No matter which way you look at it, the athletes are going to be good. It's just a matter of giving them the resources to uh, to be able to keep up worldwide. And and uh, you know, right now, I, I think we uh, we certainly might be you know we're certainly losing our grip a, a little bit, and we might even be falling behind in some cases. I, I understand completely that that you know any any country would want to get the best coaches, and and as you point out, they they probably come from Canada so far, and. I guess the question is, Kevin, how come these coaches are not being picked up by Canadian teams? Do they get paid more dough, Kevin, or something? Or why is it all those names you just mentioned aren't coaching provincial teams or, or other high-performance teams here in Canada? Well, the program would be who picks up the coaches going overseas, the, the, be it the whatever program, be it the Japan program or whatever the case may be, the U.S. program. You're, they're being picked up by the program. So that would, in Canada, that would be Curling Canada. And... And I guess it's up to them who they want to to approach um, to, to coach our, our national teams. Um, uh, it's not just trying to coach, you know, Brad Gushu. Well, you know, there's not a lot Brad Gushu needs out of a coach. But we could certainly need help when it comes to our young athletes and uh, having training camps across Canada at a young age, at 14, 15 years old, not 25 years old. Like, let's get our top instructors uh, into these uh, regional junior camps with the young curlers and, and try to keep our, our, our teaching somewhat consistent across our country. We do our uh, curling academies in the summer, and, and, and uh, what we notice is that kids will come for four or five years in a row ones that are really wanting to to be be strong in our sport and then we have a certain teaching regimen and and and, and just you know the way we like to see the you know the rock thrown and the kids will come back in the next year and we go well, what happened well my coach doesn't like that you know he'd rather have this okay <laughs> but so the problem is we've got coaches and instructors across canada not all teaching the same at all well, that's difficult too, because now the young athlete, you know, you imagine a, a hockey player going to camps in Saskatchewan, BC, Ontario. If you really want to get good at hockey, 
and they're teaching all kinds of different ways. Well, the poor kid comes back confused. Well, what am I going to do? And that's something that happens in Canada a lot with curling. There's no real teaching manual for all coaches and instructors across Canada. And that, that is a problem. Um, and, and we need to, we need to fix that in Canada. Um, we're, we're not as strong as most countries when it comes to instruction of our young athletes, just because a lot of our instructors and coaches who are, are good hearted and, and really want to do the best for the athletes, but they're not all uh, preaching from the same uh, book. Kevin, have you ever been approached about coaching a team? And, and if so, would you consider it or what, what where are you at with that? Well, I've been approached, yes, uh, not from anybody in Canada. Um, the other, you know, of course, I help Botcher a little bit, um, and and if if they have any trouble or whatever, they want me to come out on the ice, no problem. But but other than that, uh, not in Canada, no, definitely uh, quite a lot uh, elsewhere. Um, but but you know, I've got a lot of oars in the water <laughs> all the time, so I don't have a lot of time for that. Uh, yet, but that doesn't mean that someday I won't. I, I would love it for sure. You know, I, I totally love our our game and would would uh, enjoy that. But I do a lot of teaching, a lot of instructing um, all over the place, just not with one particular program or one particular team. Warren, when did coaching become so big in curling? Um, did you guys have one when you curled back? You know, in the seventies. Tell us when there was a time that said, "Okay, this coaching thing's becoming the real deal." Well, I was involved in creating the. The first program. So back uh, in the 70s, the Curl Canada program came into existence, and uh, I was charged with the responsibility of pulling everything together to develop, first of all, an instruction aspect. And so at that point, we actually had an instruction program that certified people up to three levels. It was in existence Canada wide for many years, and it's just sort of seemingly has disappeared. And again, as Kevin has suggested, this is really needed. I think we need a standard. What what is the approach that we use that everybody kind of agrees? Yes, this is the best way to do things in every aspect of, of the sport, particularly the, the, the delivery. The coaching segment we started to develop uh, with the Coaching Association of Canada the first uh, level one coaching programs back in about 1977, and sort of at that point in time it was directed pretty much at the juniors. Uh, it wasn't a, a thing that happened at all with uh, with the men's or women's side of things. I actually as an experiment because I was the person that was putting all this together, coached uh, Lindsay Sparks team for four years when they won two Canadian championships back in the 70s. And it was a learning experience for me because I had football coaching background of about eight years, but no one had ever coached curling. So that was the beginning of us starting to put a program together as to what the coaches in curling do. By the mid 80s, a number of curling teams started to, at the men's and women's level, start to use coaches to some degree. And it slowly started to catch on. But uh, that was the start of it, was the 70s. And it was primarily initially aimed at the juniors. Uh, will a bunch of teams curl now, Kev, after this long season? Will they, will they practice for the next couple of months before this thing cranks up? Probably September, I guess, right? Before events start again. Yeah, it's funny. You know, I was, uh, I was on a call with, uh, with actually, with uh, Brendan Watcher um, on a, on a d- different uh, topic um, the other day. And it does sound like there'll be some curling, hopefully, you know, as long as COVID, you know, is going the direction that it seems to be going. Hopefully, um, there'll be some curling in August. They, um, so yeah, so I think curling is pretty much done for the for the summer now. Uh, we are into June, so hopefully it does. If we got, curlers have to have a break, but it looks like because of the Olympic uh, Olympics next year, the curlers want and maybe in a, in most in some cases need to get on the ice a little bit earlier than 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 normal because they've got to build up to. Uh, 
to be able to uh, compete at their best in uh, in December in Canada for the trials and uh, depending on you know, what country you're from to be ready in the late fall to be able to compete towards trying to get to the Olympic Games. Kevin, to curlers these days, do they have to, you know, you said they, they do need a break, but are the better curlers, Kevin, sort of keeping to a routine over the summer months? Yeah, no, that's a great uh, point, Jim, actually. Um, most times, curlers, yes, there definitely is a, a a summertime routine because curling is a really a lopsided sport. You're using one side of your body. It's a lunge position for throwing, sweeping. You've got your one hand doing a lot of the work, depending on which side of the rock you're on. So when it comes to your summertime break, um, usually curling is done in, in, in April sometimes, maybe, maybe early May, but usually by the end of April. So you've got the month of May to, to relax or most of the May to let your body just relax. And then you body balance for the first while in the summertime, say the month of June, half of July, your body balancing in the gym. Then you're going to build for a month or six weeks, build muscle, and then you get ready for season. Okay. But in this case, now we're already into June and the curlers just finished. So they're going to have to take off at least three weeks, almost to the end of June. And then now you got a body balance. You can't do that in three weeks. It's not possible. So you've got to take a month at least. Okay. Well, now we're to the end of July. Well, now you're going to build muscle. Well, no, we're going to start curling August 15th. Because it's such a weird year that we're ending late and starting early because of the Olympics, curlers are, are not going to have their summertime routine the way it normally is. They're going to have to speed everything up. And that, of course, is worrisome from the coaching perspective, and that's uh, injuries. Uh, it's worrisome, but it is what it is. With COVID, I'm so grateful that they got in all the events in the Calgary bubble and in Aberdeen and now the the U.S. Nationals, all were able to to get completed. That's fantastic. So it'll be interesting uh, to see how, how some of the teams handle it during the summertime. We'll, put, we'll get some uh, athletes on when we start, you know, in the August shows to just uh, hear what they did um, in this regard because it's really important. So we've got a couple of emails. Let me, uh, let me save the funny one, okay? we got two of them. Uh, I want to save the funny one for, for last. Uh, it's about Guy Hemmings. That's when I fell in love with curling when this guy came along. No one will ever forget when the lights went out. He changed the score. Uh, but Lynn Marsh uh, writes us first. Hello to Inside Curling uh, and the podcast crew. As a huge curling fan, uh, Team Gushu, um, I would like to thank you for what you add to the game of curling and how much I've learned about the game and the players since you started this. Well, thank you. I just listened again to your interview with Brad this past, past week, and I totally agree with him on the six rocks for mixed curling. I've become a big fan of mixed curling only in the past year or two. It's so interesting, exciting, and fast-paced. I do believe that even-numbered rock throwing for the men and the women on the team would enhance the game. Just my opinion, but wanted to express the thanks again for such an entertaining curling season. I look forward to much more. Warren, you want to go first? Well, Brad brought this up to us a couple of weeks ago, and we talked to him from Aberdeen, and I've thought about it quite a bit. I'm not sure whether I agree with six rucks or not. Uh, it increases the length of the game a bit. It will change a few things. It's one more to sweep. But after thinking through it, I thought if, in fact, this was the route to go, I wouldn't uh, do it as Brad suggested, which is each player alternating one, two, three, four, five, six. What I would still set it up with one player throwing the first rock and the same player throwing the fifth and sixth stones and the other player throwing the three in between, in between, because this was the original concept that we thought of with this game, was to make it so it's a little off the norm, and that you can change. If you decide that you've got a better advantage by switching, 
who's throwing one, five, and six with two, three, and four. At any point in time in the game, you can do that. And I know that hasn't been the commonplace with it, but it has happened with some teams. I noticed that the American team this year, uh, Joe Polo threw uh, first and, and fifth. Uh, and I think one other team in the world mixed doubles did as well. So if it goes to six rucks and discussed it, that's the way I see it. Kevin, what do you say? I really like mixed doubles the way it is. Um, I think it's fascinating. I, I love watching it. It's exciting. I do see some switching, but to Brad's point, um, the males generally throw the middle three rocks, so that's true, but not always. And it, it's still in its infancy. It's a very young sport yet. So I, I'm not I, I'm not sure. Like I, I kind of would leave it the same for a while. I don't think I would switch uh, anything with it for now because, boy, is it gaining in popularity and it, it, it's growing like crazy worldwide. So I, you know, I, um, we're starting to get our top athletes in Canada playing it. And, and that was a concern in the last Olympics. We, we, a lot of our top players didn't play it much. They're starting to play it more. So I think let's just hang on. Let's just wait a little bit. Um, it's going very, very well. Let's not uh, change a thing that is showing great uh, improvement and growth right now. So let's just kind of keep it the way it is for now. Robin Henry passes on this uh, story. Uh, I was helping out at the volunteer rally and uniform sizing event in Kitchener for the 2003 Scotties. Not sure why, but Guy Hemmings was there shaking hands and schmoozing. Many people attending knew who he was, but some didn't. Some people not familiar with him didn't know who Guy was because he was wearing a name sticker that said, my name is Kevin Martin. The best part was he was also signing autographs as Kevin. Uh, maybe you had to be there. But I found it quite amusing to see him work the crowd. Quite a character. Great shows, fellas. Keep up the great work. That's hilarious, Kevin. I love that. I have a great deal of respect for Guy Hemmings. I, I like him a lot, and I, I remember that. And But I do know why he was there. So back in 2001, um, you know, to get the uh, the changes in the sport that we wanted, and, and it eventually turned into a boycott of, of the, the Briar and, very, and various events. Um, but Guy Hemmings... Um, was approached to to not sign into the Grand Slam group, and if he was willing to not sign, um, he would be uh, given a, a three-year uh, Guy Hemmings curling tour gig worth a lot of money. I'm not going to say how much money. So Guy phoned me, actually, because uh, he, it meant a lot to him to see the sport grow. He, 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 didn't, he wouldn't sign the deal if... if you know, if it mattered to us getting the Grand Slams off the ground. So he phoned me and said, Kevin, this is what's going on. Um, but I won't, I won't do it if, if it hurts. And, and uh, so we got together and, and, and even with Guy not coming on board with the Grand Slams, he could do this deal and we could still get the deal done with the Grand Slams and, uh, and carry forward. So I just got a huge amount of respect. Guy would have walked away from a ton of money <clears throat> for the betterment of the game. Uh, but he didn't need to. So he ended up signing a three-year deal uh, promoting uh, curling and, and teaching curling, the Guy Hemming Curling Tour, which was hugely popular and a great thing. And, of course, Guy is such a character. And that was in 03. He signed the deal in 01 with Curling Canada. So that would have still been inside the three-year deal uh, to show up in Kitchener and, and promote curling and do what Guy does best, and that's have fun. And that's exactly why he would have been there. And yes, I remember that he wore the Kevin Martin thing. And, uh, and we had a good laugh about that too. But what a character. Yeah, a great guy to have in our sport. Okay, we can't keep him waiting any longer. Time to bring on Wayne Madaw. 
there's that familiar sound, footsteps coming down the hallway. We're talking about the great curler, and he was absolutely the darling of the briar this year, Wayne Mada. How are you, Wayne? I am uh, fantastic. Thank you very much, gentlemen. You came back from an awful ski accident a few years ago, you know, went into the briar because Glenn Howard had an accident, so you replaced him. And then you had this fantastic run. Talk about the ski accident, I guess, uh, Wayne. It was flat out a freak accident, Jim. It was, uh, I've skied my entire life, skied all over the world, longer than I've curled. And uh, we're members of a ski club over here near our house. And uh, my daughter and I just decided, you know what? Let's just go out at nighttime, ski a few runs, just get some exercise. And uh, being a young girl that she is and somewhat adventuresome, she took me through the train park, which I've done a thousand times before. I got a little bit aggressive on a three meter jump, which isn't very big. And uh, I landed a little wrong. <laughs> to say the least, and uh, literally snapped my tibia and fibia right straight across the top of the ski boot, and it went up and down my leg, so there wasn't much left there. I mean, when it happened, Wayne, you I mean, you've had such a long career. Your first briar, I mean, you were in your early 20s, I guess, right, when you were curled in your first briar? 30 years ago, 1991, some guy, Kevin Martin, won that year. Yeah, <laughs> there we go. So after the accident, I, I mean, Certainly looking like in paper and from what you tell us now that there'd be no comeback at all. You're you know, a fanatic skier. You're a really good golfer. I heard you shot 70 the other day too, a bird told me. Is that is that right? That's not bad, yeah. That's not my first game of the year. <laughs> it was pretty impressive. Oh. <laughs> Coming back to curling though, Wayne, did, was that a tough decision? Did you, I mean, once you broke your leg, uh, um, you must have looked at this thing saying, okay, I'm done. I, I know you're retired work-wise. Walk us through your mindset there when, when it all happened. Jim, I had no no intentions of coming back and playing competitive curling ever again. Right until Scott Howard called me and said, my dad's smashed up his snowmobile. We need a skip. And I said, are you sure there's not anybody better you can find? <laughs> so uh, when Glenn was uh, started his recovery, him and I talked about it a fair bit. I said, Glenn, I'm not even sure I can play eight games, 12 games, 14 games, whatever it may take. Uh, you know, if, if we're going to go, we're going to try and win this thing. So we kind of put together a, a practice schedule. You know, I, I had curled my one game, a, not even one game a week. I was about one game every two or three weeks. It took me a few days to recover after that. And so we started off on a slow schedule of, of you know, riding the bike a little bit more at home and, uh, and then throwing rocks twice. You know, we only had five weeks. So it started with throwing rocks twice a week, then three times a week, then four times a week. And then it was time to leave for the briar. So, you know, I commend Glenn a lot for how he prepared not only me to, to deal with everything, but the team as well for, you know, what were going to be the ups and downs of a, of a difficult week. But I'll be the first person to say it's, it's very different playing a briar with no expectations. All my life I've gone to the briar with expecting to win, to be there Sunday afternoon and, uh, this year we went and my only thought was, you know, I hope I don't embarrass myself and I hope the team plays great and uh, I can make a few shots and we can, you know, maybe make it till Sunday. It was a very different goal, that's for sure. When, when you started the run, when you started going pretty good, at what point during the briar did you say, hey, we got a, we got a shot here? I'm going to tell you the exact moment was in the fourth end against John Epping. We all started thinking we could do well in this thing. And then all of a sudden we missed a few shots and gave up a four ender to John Epping and came crashing back down to earth very quickly. <laughs> 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 so 
soon as you think you're good enough to compete against those guys on a day in day out basis is when they uh when they straighten you out and tell you no you're not really are <laughs> you're not anymore we saw glenn there of course at the end of the end of the sheet and i was always curious about who does most of the calling during that game was it you or glenn or how, how much communication did you guys have during each game all the practices we had beforehand i said you know what i call a different game than glenn and uh, the team came to me and said well we play a different game than you and i said well i'll try and merge the two together but at the end of the day i'm the guy who has to believe in in what's right and what's wrong and uh as we kept winning games the team bought in more and more and uh glenn was the best coach ever he supported me 100 percent when the team spoke up and said you know what we don't think this is right glenn always said you know what whatever wayne thinks is right is he's the guy throwing the last two shots and calling the game we better side with him so I can't thank Glenn enough for, I think he was an outstanding coach. He really excelled in that role and uh, took it on 100%. During the whole briar, Mike Harris and I kept in touch with each other talking about, uh, I guess, you know, we talked a lot about skipping 101. And I think this is good for all the young kids that are listening to this show. And that's not being one-dimensional. So I'd like you maybe touch on this a little bit, if you could. It seems easy when you watch it, but it's really not easy to perform it and that's being able to look at the situation look at the scoreboard and figure out i guess a path forward during ends and uh, that's what i really enjoyed you didn't start every end with a corner guard you didn't start every end in any certain particular way but by the end of the end you got your deuce your three set up well kevin i i'm gonna say uh, you know for better or for worse i think the game has taken that one-dimensional look that you talk about. And I think it's become the players has become so good at making every shot. Mostly the run back is the big one, right? Is, is the teams kind of set up the ends the same way they throw a corner guard or they throw the center, they play the freeze, the other team plays the freeze, depending how it sets up, then they start running the back. So I, I've, you know, just because I didn't curl for five years, didn't mean I didn't watch. And I worked on a strategy that kind of took that shot away. And the way you take that away is, eliminate guards and so i didn't feel i needed to throw corner guards you could set ends up differently um as much as the freeze is is a shot that 99 percent of the guys can pick out when you play a freeze but it's more effective than the run back in today's game because when they make the run back and stick it with their own rock all of a sudden they're one buried whereas when they're picking out the freeze it still leaves you a chance to play an offensive shot on your next one rather than trying to play a defensive one so the one thing i focus on when you talk about that is how do I change the other team's shot so I can continually play offensive shots rather than defensive shots against them? I guess that's a good way of putting it because I think uh, the years that you weren't playing at a high level, uh, the game has changed a little bit. And I think people thought you were a little unconventional. <laughs> and of course, I look at it going, well, no, it's totally conventional. It makes a lot of sense to me that you don't always have to go around that center guard. You can always freeze to something. You can always come around something in the back four to the back 12, something that nobody does anymore. There's lots of options you can do and, and you don't, you're not forced into this playbook. Maybe it's because junior curling, they tend to the young kids have a playbook and it's kind of drilled into their head that you have to do this. It's like a dance. Instead of, I guess, the way you and I were, were taught to play, and that's just a school of hard knocks, where you make a call and you go, well, that was dumb. Okay, I won't do that again. And you, and you keep doing it a thousand times. I'm going to put on my coach hat there for a minute, and, and I'm going to agree with you, and, and nothing against all the coaches, but I almost feel watching as my kids have both grown up through it in the last, in the last 10 years through junior curling, I almost feel teams are overcoached. And 
the coaches literally have to step back a little more and let the teams play and let them exactly what you just said, win and lose from the school of hard knocks. And you'll remember, you know, the games you won, but you'll really remember the games you lost if you made the call rather than the coach made the call. I think uh, one interesting question, and Wayne, we asked our listeners to send in some questions, so we have a few, but I think this one is an interesting one from Alan Batchin in Colorado, and I have the same question. Are you going to keep playing? Are you going to come back to the competition? And his says, this is a request. He wants you to come back. So are we going to see Wayne Mada out there again next year? You know what? I, I love the game and I love competing and I love the challenge of thinking through ends. I, I enjoyed that so much being part of the Briar and getting the opportunity to play the best teams in the world again. But the simple answer is no, I'm not <laughs> planning to play at all ever again. To go a little further with that is I normally match the team's rocks at the World Championships, Team Hasselbergs. And uh, more than once I tried to slide and could not take a slide. My knees were still not recovered from uh, 12 games of the prior. So when it takes you more than a month to recover from 12 games, that's that's somebody telling you that, uh, you know, you're only given so many slides in your life and uh, I've used all mine up. This is more of a probably statement than a question because you're uh, you're kind of unique and I don't think anyone else holds this distinction. You've won three world championships, which uh, we don't have many Canadians who have. But the interesting thing is you've played second, third and skip. Uh, different position each time you've won. Of those three positions, which one do you like playing the best? Oh, it's, it's really hard. You know what? I, I enjoyed every one of them because they were at different stages of my life. You know, I enjoyed the learning experience I had playing second for, for Russ and Glenn. We played against, you know, Ed Lukwich, Ed Wernick, Al Hackner, Kevin Martin every weekend. And, you know, when you watched, when you played Kevin, it was up and down the sheet. When you played Wernick, it was a million guards in play. So, you learn so many things. It was truly a great experience in my life. Um, from there, I moved on to skip, and I love that, and I still love that because you get to be involved in the strategy part of the game, and, and that's like what Kevin said. You get to think the ends through and how you're going to deal with every situation. And then the, the third was at a time in my life when, you know what, I didn't want to be that guy that was at the other end. I just wanted to be the guy who could help a team win games, and uh, they fit me into a role there between Brent and Craig and Glenn where – you know, they had already won. They were a fantastic team long before I came along. And, uh, you know, they let me just gel right in there to Richard's heart position. And uh, it, it was a ton of fun. So I can't pick one favorite, Warren. It was just truly a treat to play all of them. And uh, it was one of those things that I think because of that helps me be the, the coach I am today because I understand the role of uh, every position on the team. Hey, when it comes to playing, I just want to bring back a memory for Wayne when he was uh... – curling he was throwing skip rocks this is in ottawa and uh you missed your last shot it was an intern uh tap and ticked the guard and kaboom on the sideboards and the broom wasn't made good enough i think the wood must have been rotten or something so the broom breaks into about i don't know four or five pieces so of course wayne wayne stomps off the ice to the to the dressing room mad but there's this little little kid um he might have been i don't know maybe six and and, and he was down by the door but he, you didn't see him he was a little wee and you had it right by. So I went out on the ice and I picked the biggest piece of the broom that was left. It was the head and maybe two inches of shaft. 
And I went and grabbed it and I took him by the hand and I brought him into the <laughs> into the dressing room to, to to get an autograph from you. Do you remember that situation? Because that little boy was so happy because you, of course, changed right away. As soon as he walked in the door, you changed completely and welcomed him in. And oh, man, that was terrific. I think I may even know who that kid was. He's a he's a friend of my daughter's now. <laughs> and and uh, you know what, Kevin? It's it's just one of those things that uh, you know everybody has their own way to to park their uh, disappointing performances. And uh, one thing I I you know people say well, you can't do that. I say well it's it's my own way to you know kind of put it behind me. I I have my little little time of myself, and then I move on. You know, but you changed immediately as soon as you saw this little fellow walk in. And, and it went from Wayne, really angry Wayne Madaw, to really nice Wayne Madaw. Oh, come on in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course, of course, of course. And then the, the little guy brought up that piece of broom. It was, it was only a little bit, bit of it left, but it was a classic Wayne Madaw moment. I've signed more than one piece of broken broom in my life. <laughs> hey, Wayne, I got a question for you. Um, you've been to many briars, 10 of them. You've, you've probably seen, I don't know how many different formats over your time. And what what, what is your take on the briar uh and and what should the format be after you've looked at all sorts of them uh do you like the way it is now you got a couple of pools that it was never that way probably when you started what say you about that i was one of the people that was was a traditionalist i liked the original format because that's what i grew up watching that's what i grew up playing but i actually felt this format was better this year i, I didn't mind it at all the 18 teams the two pools and nine you know the top what is it, the top four out of each pool make it. Then you play the, the best teams in the other pool. Uh, there's less meaningless games. I just came from a world championship where we played a 13-game round robin. It's like there was draws where not one game meant anything. You know what? It's very difficult to watch. It's very difficult to prepare your team for. The more meaningful games you play, the better. So I didn't mind this year's format at all. Well, let's let's talk about the. I guess uh, definitely you want every game to be meaningful. There's no question about that. And uh, the 13 game round robin. Let's talk about that a little bit from the worlds because that is a lot of games. Uh, to, to find a champion, to have the cream rise at the top, and and find out who your best team is that particular week. I just don't think it takes 13 games. I just, you know, I'm not, I just don't know if we, if we need to have as many countries involved either when it comes to the world, but that's really up to the World Curling Federation. But if they want to continue to expand, then maybe they need to look at more two-pool system, or maybe the World Curling Federation needs to look at a multi-pool existence from tier A to B to C to D, whatever the case may be. Yeah, like they do with the, the Europeans, they do that, and it's and it's usually popular over there like you have the the two pools and it worked out really well because the teams at the bottom are playing not to get relegated to the b pool and the teams at the top of the b pool are, are playing to move up so it made every game interesting at the europeans i actually very much like that format too kevin i think that's a that's a good way to do it and i understand what the world curling federation they're trying to introduce new countries to greater competition but there's other ways to do it than at a world championships where teams are getting beat 18-1 yeah, I think it will change. I think what they're facing right now, and they're just trying to get through some time, is to go to, right, right now, seven teams from Europe are in the World Championship. And, of course, there's been growing pressure from Asia and the fact that now you've got three teams there pretty much on an annual basis that are going to be contenders. And then you've got USA and Canada. So as soon as you start looking at what is a probably like, like, likely pool scenario, which is 10 teams, 
you're going to cut out a couple of teams uh, from Europe. So I think that is the challenge. But I think the move they made with mixed doubles this year kind of suggests where things are going to go. They are going to start to reduce the size of those pools. There's going to be teams going up and going down. And I think it's just a matter of time that the same thing is going to happen at the world level, which uh, I agree with Kevin and, and you, Wayne. It's, it's what needs to happen. I'd like to hear your crystal ball here, Wayne, just what you see when you get at your kitchen table and have a seizure or two and you've got your curling crystal ball in front of you. What exactly you see in our interesting sport right now with the growth in, uh, in Asia uh, and the U.S. being incredible? I guess I'd like to hear your thoughts on where do you see this sport going when it comes to world play, world cups, and just growth in general? Like I hear of curling clubs opening in the U.S., uh, all around the U.S. and in places that you you know never think of, Southern California and in, in uh, I think in Florida and Palm Beach somewhere they're opening a club. So that's that's great news. And the more people that play, the more competition you're going to have. Uh, from a house league type of view, I think that is fantastic for growing the game. I think that's where it has to happen. From a competitive point of view, I think it's really good the way we are. The fact that Canada is not winning, it's it's more the players just not performing when the time comes. As much as I'm not trying to say that, that Kevin Martin was better than, you know, than Brendan Botcher, but, you know, Kevin Martin was able to win, win competitions. Like when it came to the Olympics, he was, he performed, you know, it never hurt that he had John Morris, Ben Hebert and Mark Kennedy playing in front of him. Again, not to say Brendan's team's not as good, but when it came down to it at the, at the world level, whether they were overcurled or undercurled or with the bubble thing and everything else, they didn't perform as well as they did at the Briar and then when they won three slams in a row at the World Championship. And, uh, you know, that's it's when the lights come on, the TV comes on, and you got the Canada flag on your back. It's performing your best. Uh, let's talk about coaching. You're a coach of a really good team in uh, Hasselborg. And first of all, how did that all come together? They actually reached out to Sherry first. And uh, they said, uh, you know, is it okay if we call your husband and ask him to have a coaching tryout? <laughs> How do you feel about your husband husband spending, uh, you know, traveling around the world with the five Swedish women? <laughs> and she's like, she's like, good luck, take him away, get him out of here. <laughs> and uh, and that was just after, you know, a couple of years after I'd broken my leg. So I think she was pretty happy to get me out of the house and get me doing something else. So I literally had a tryout with Team Hasselberg and. Uh, you know, it was it was a two way tryout. Is I wasn't prepared to uh, coach a team that uh, was high maintenance. They're the most routine, normal ladies that I've ever hung around, which is fantastic. And uh, it worked out to be a great relationship. And uh, we had a great first weekend together, and we've built from there. Uh, I've talked to Anna a little bit about it and uh, how important um, your role as far as strategy and, and thinking the game through, because obviously you walked into a team that could always shoot high percentage. Hey, Kevin, they they won the Olympic gold medal before I joined them. So they're really good long before I came along. But didn't Anna want to maybe get a little help um, strategically with maybe having a few more rocks in play and playing a little more aggressively? And there's a lot of little things we've worked on like that. And, and I came in, there was, you know, we didn't hide behind anything. Basically, we said, you know, this is what I can bring to the team. This is what I can help you do. And if that works for you guys, great. And they said, this is what we're looking for. And, and like I said, both those things matched up. Um, one of the things that I'm very proud of is that I've helped them be able to find ways to win games when they're not at their best. And that's one of the things that, that really takes a lot of skill and talent from, from mentally to physically. And 
they won a couple grand slams last year. Well, they'll be the first to say, you know what? We felt we were barely at our B game, but we, we converted that into a, a game where we could compete with anybody. And they said, that's one of the big things is, is being able to play. And, and as everybody knows, you're not, you're hundred percent every time you walk on the ice, but it's a matter of trying to find ways to win when you're not a hundred percent. Wayne, there's been some, uh, I, I don't want to say controversy um, as a coach, uh, you know, and, and being a Canadian and some people are looking at this going where they're a little pissed that we're losing Canadian coaches or Canadian coaches are going to curl over in Europe. And some of them are saying it shouldn't be allowed to that extent. Did you have choices when, when it came time, when you got asked about going to coach for Hasselborg, had other teams approached you? And what are, you, what are your thoughts in this thing about Canadian coaches coaching abroad? Well, this year at the Ladies World Championships, of the six teams that qualified for the Olympics, five of them had Canadian coaches. So, you know, nobody's getting rich off curling in any way, direction, as I know Kevin and Warren will tell you that. It's it's something you do for the love of the game. I had an opportunity to coach a few other teams, and it just worked out that Team Hasselberg, again, was the right fit. They wanted the skills that I brought to the team, and uh, and they were the team that I wanted to coach. So it just happened to be the perfect fit. You know, Sweden, Switzerland, Russia, whatever it is, uh, I look at them as Team Hasselberg, and I'm going to do, I'm lucky to be part of that team, and we'll do everything I can to help them win curling games. Well, we really appreciate you coming on, Wayne. You've got lots of stories. When I first met you, you were the bad boy, okay, of curling. All you did, Wayne, was flip someone the bird, and the thing went viral for about 10 years after that. He didn't flip somebody the bird, he flipped the entire crowd the bird. No, Kevin. It was only one bank of people. <laughs> <laughs> uh, give us you know, one or two of your funniest experiences. That we've had some guests on and had some great stories about all sorts of things from players away from the away from the game or even on the ice. How about you, Wayne? Oh, there's a there's a million of a million stories. You know, my favorites probably always revolve around skins games. We were lucky enough to go to a lot of skins games, but this one was with uh, back when we were playing with Joe Franz, who everybody knows had uh, had his own issues. And uh, the night before, they draw for practice times. And we had the afternoon game, which was 2 o'clock in the afternoon in Gimli, and we drew the morning practice, which was 8 a.m. So Scott Bailey and I, who had been to enough skins game, immediately looked at each other and said, well, the ice changes from practice to real, so we are not going to practice time. Well, Joe's like, Joe's trying to be the good guy because he was new to the team. He says, well, Graham's going to go, so I'm going to go with Graham. Well, Joe and Scott and I went out and enjoyed everything the Skins game has to offer the night before. Um, everybody shows up for their 8-8, like the teams that practice after us. It was uh, Paul Trulson. Kevin, do you remember him? Uh, <laughs> yeah, thanks, Wayne. <laughs> some, some, guy named, some guy named Furby was there as well. And then uh, we got to actually play your old second, I think, who was skipping a team. So we, he won Petrick. the McCain. Yep. Yeah, Patrick, he won the McCain spiel to qualify. So that was our draw, too. So things were uh, things were going our way. And so, like I say, Trulson and Furby and Patrick, their teams are all there at 8 o'clock. And Graham and Joe show up for practice, not Scott and I. Graham goes out, starts throwing rocks. Joe throws one rock and then lays down on the backboards and has a sleep. Graham throws 12 rocks walks off the ice and then says, okay, we're done our practice. And everybody else was looking like Paul Trulson had just won the Olympic gold medals, looking like, what What are these guys doing? And then needed to say, two games later, we picked up $90,000 in a skins victory. So <laughs> there's different ways to do everything, but that's one of my favorite stories that you don't always have to uh, 
you know, throw a million rocks up and down the sheet. You just got to be able to find ways to win when the time comes. So when we've asked our listeners to send in some questions this week, and this is an interesting one, it's kind of off in a different direction, but Chris Marino wants to have your thoughts about carving and how anyone never misses anymore with carving. You know what? I was. That's a great question is because I'm working hard on that right now with almost every broom manufacturer and everyone who has an opinion to get truly how this works. As I never played with it on a regular basis before this year's briar. And I'm going to tell you, I, I used it, you know, Tim March came up and swept for me a few times at practice before the briar. And I was amazed. And then we got out to the briar. And my goal, probably similar to, to Kevin's or Glenn Howard's for sure, was I tried to throw every rock dead straight and as perfect as I could out of my hand. So when it left my hand, it was really close already. Then all of a sudden, I, I threw a couple this year at the briar where it's a little wide. And I watched him march carve rock six, eight inches. Like, couldn't believe it. I, I let a hit go that I was sure I flashed wide, hit it right on the nose. So I am a big believer in carving now because. I've seen how it works. I want to understand how it works and what makes it the best. And Kevin and I have talked about this. We can't believe we didn't figure this out earlier. How did we not know this with all the years we played and all the curling we've done? How did we not know this works differently? So to answer his question is yes, I believe it works. And yes, there has to be a better understanding. Um, I still think the brooms are too effective. They shouldn't be that effective that a 75% curler can become a 90% curler simply because of sweeping. Yeah, it's going to be interesting going forward for sure. Well, Wayne, I got to ask you, at the time of recording, this is post Toronto Maple Leafs losing. Are, are you you a Leaf fan? A hugely born and raised Leaf fan. Maybe it was your fault. <laughs> I'm heartbroken. <laughs> it's only been a couple of years since they won last, hasn't it? At least we didn't go like the Oilers and just roll over. Or the, oh, or true. The, yeah. Or the Canucks yeah. not even make the playoffs, but... It hurt to watch them perform like that, and it, it hurt to watch Marner and Matthews not do anything, really. And uh, I think it really shows how much of a leader Tavares was uh, on and off the ice to the team. Maybe they need Madaw to step in, a little consulting as a coach. Wayne, thanks a million. Thanks a million, man, for doing this. And uh, good luck this afternoon, okay? I know I know you're busy working. Oh, no, no, you got a golf game. Yeah. I got a golf game with Glenn. He's, I can hear him walking into my house upstairs, so I hope he's getting my clubs in his car. Okay, good. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Wayne. Appreciate you coming on. Gentlemen, have a great day. Well, Kevin, Wayne kind of behaved himself on the show. I was <laughs> I was hoping <laughs> I wanted to get some you know a little little something something out of him but uh god what a story kevin he was and 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 he still loves the game right crazy he's going to be around kevin for a long time uh no question no question in in coaching and and uh, obviously can still play the game if he you know if the body would allow him but uh yeah a great guest to have and and certainly so knowledgeable not just in you know throwing the rock or coaching but just the idea of how the game should go forward uh into the future and yeah great to have wayne on and uh, and uh, certainly uh, terrific to have uh, a few minutes of his time uh warren when you were running the the events the briar uh did wayne give you any grief or was he pretty cool <laughs> huh come on oh yes wayne and i had had some interesting exchanges over time i can think of a few but uh no we we had uh, a couple of discussions about a few things 
<laughs> we got to have a show about grief that's been given to Warren Hanson. Okay, we could we could have a whole week of shows. <laughs> anyway, great show. Thanks a lot to Wayne for coming on, and uh, thank you, Kevin. Thank you, Warren. Uh, we've got a, a Zoom that we're doing this month in June. Um, Inside Curling is reaching out to curling clubs uh, wherever you are, all over the place, uh, and we invite you to contact us and set up a Zoom call with uh, me and Kevin and Warren to discuss anything you like. These have become very popular, uh, and you really do get to tap into uh, the great minds of Kevin and Warren. Um, we do it on a limited basis, and really only for you know for clubs, not not individual people. So get in touch with us. Uh, also, we're going to thank Rod Paulson and his company, In-House Strategies. They've been doing all the work on social media, and it's very active, and, and uh, that's what's made the Facebook page and Twitter and Instagram so good. Thanks a lot to Warren. Thanks a lot to Andrew, our new producer today. Uh, good to have him on board. Uh, also, uh, Emil Delic has been helping out with this quite a bit, So and so has Jonathan Brazel. So another uh, show in the books, uh, fellas, Kev. Leaf fan? It's all Oilers, baby. <laughs> I know. You and I can hardly rib Leaf fans, Kevin. We got wiped out in Edmonton. Four straight, and Warren can't. Uh, Vancouver never made the playoff. So, hockey? What is that? What is hockey? Yeah. yeah what are, <laughs> it's, that other, it's that other winter sport. <laughs> yeah. What, what, what are playoffs? Yeah. Good God. So, uh, great show, fellas. Uh, another one in the books. Thanks a lot to Wayne McDonald, and we'll be back next week with another episode of Insight Group. Thanks, Jimmy. Thanks, Jim. Thanks, Jim.